Good morning, I'm Paul, host of the new PL, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today. We believe business needs a new PL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision and focus and strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week on the new PL, we're very pleased to be speaking to Priti Atikari. Originally from Nepal, Priti has spent the last decade in tech and AI startups in Singapore, Canada, and the US. Priti believes in the power of emerging technologies like AI and the massive effect they can have on society. In her recent roles in VP of Marketing in New York based AI startup Fuse Machines and AI Lead and Director at Emergence, part of the World and Co Investment Bank, Pretty has used her platform to educate the public about artificial intelligence and the important issues like diversity, ethics and privacy play in AI development. So Pretty, a very warm welcome to the new PNL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, perhaps if we can just start the podcast with you giving listeners a, a bit of an understanding of your, your background in AI and what you currently do and who you do it for. Perfect. Um, uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Preeti Adhikari. I'm actually graduating from Yale University um, in a few weeks uh, with a Master in Advanced Management. Before this, I used to be the VP of Marketing of an AI startup in New York City, as well as uh, the AI lead um, for an investment bank um, in New York City as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm originally from Nepal and I do understand the implications that artificial uh, intelligence has, especially for developing countries. And I'm super, super passionate about it. And that's what I'm here to talk about. Thank you. Uh, I mean, accepting that we still have some, I guess some major challenges in many countries when it comes to the COVID pandemic, the development of multiple vaccines should hopefully see us slowly emerge from the, the pandemic over the next 12 months globally. I wondered whether you felt this was AI's moment to, to take a lead and sit at the heart of the global economic rebuild, or conversely, is this actually the time that we need to be taking a step back with regards to AI and look much more deeply at the possible societal and economic impacts of AI before it is, I guess, irreversibly embedded as a cornerstone of the build back? What's your view on that? Perfect. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, the second wave, especially for a lot of countries like uh, Nepal, India, Brazil, it's mm. heartbreaking to see the news, yes. right? I mean, um, you know, I was just looking at news from Nepal, and I think two out of five people that are tested, they're positive. You know, I think 3,500 people have died already. And, you mm. know, uh, the numbers from Brazil and India are even worse, right? Yes. Um, in terms of the timing, I think this is the time to actually harness and leverage the power of AI. Um, it, even in terms of you know, how COVID has uh, taken over our lives and so on, we have so many ways where um, it's already being used. And I think there is a lot of potential there, mm -hmm. right? Um, some of the things that I actually love in terms of you know, how AI has been used so far, one has been like in terms of prediction and tracking, right? In terms of looking at clusters of, uh, of, of this disease and really predicting. Um, in, in contact tracing, right? I mean, that's been such a big thing yes. in terms of um, using smart devices and whatnot for that. Um, even in terms of early diagnosis, right? Um, especially when um, medical professionals have been so overwhelmed, um, 
having telehealth or chatbots have been really, uh, you know, helpful to kind of disseminate uh, early information about uh, what's happening and so on. Um, one thing I also love is in terms of control uh, of fake news, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Because what we also see is, especially when there's something negative happening, uh, you know, if, uh, I think the sort of fake news or negative news travels way faster than, you know, the real um, sort of sources, right? So even in terms of looking at where all these kind of information are flowing from, looking at sentiment analysis and things like that, um, there is definitely a lot of you know, potential, there is a lot of work being done. And I do think that, you know, AI can really uh, make a difference, uh, mm -hmm. especially for when situations like these occur. I mean, in order for that to be to be hugely effective, I guess, there needs to be some sort of global standard at some point in the future in terms of AI and how it is designed and used and particularly around areas of ethical bias. And, and there's some big challenges there, I think. But that global standard seems it feels to me unlikely due to both the complexity of the technology itself, but also in some cases how closely aligned AI development is to, to geopolitics. And I think we've touched on that a little bit there. Right. So how can we create a, an effective regulation model for AI? Can it, can it ever be any more deeper than a, than a voluntary non-binding agreement internationally? Or how do, we, how do we develop the basis for more ethical international AI development? Right. I mean, I think this is a topic that um, that's, uh, you know, affecting all of us, right, in terms of having that global standard, um, in terms of, you know, transparency or, you know, privacy and those things like that. And what I've noticed is, you know, depending on the country uh, in terms of its maturity of adoption of AI, as well as awareness, right? There are different sort of guidelines. A lot of countries, especially developing ones, don't even have an AI strategy in terms of how to, uh, you know, harness the power, right? Um, you know, if you look at the US here, we have a lot of uh, conversations um, around usage of facial recognition technology and what it means for the privacy of the citizens and so on. Whereas, you know, the countries like China, you know, China is leading the AI race in so many ways. But then there's obviously all these uh, talks about how, um, you know, uh, the government is super involved and controls uh, you know, how the data is being used and people like the citizens don't really have a say, right? Um, and in countries that are sort of uh, just uh, starting to adopt AI, there is no talk about uh, ethics or privacy. People don't even understand what that means, right? Uh, they don't understand the uh, importance of data. Um, and there is obviously a lot of work to be done on that sphere in terms of really educating people about what that means, how uh, they should protect themselves as individuals, as well as, you know, as well as communities and nations, right? Because um, with AI, it can do so much harm in terms of, you know, um, use of that data. Uh, what I do like is, I mean, now we do sort of um, hear about uh, a few uh, standards being, you know, put out there. The EU always does a good job in terms of, you know, having uh, stricter uh, guidelines. Uh, you know, I was going through um, their uh, 
sort of guidelines in terms of AI. And I uh, love that they've sort of uh, put this, uh, you know, these risk, uh, high risk areas, I think, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, things that uh, affect the health uh, or even um, in terms of safety or fundamental rights of people. And, you know, really uh, putting guidelines for how companies, uh, even, uh, you know, government agencies can actually use that data. Um, so I love that conversation is happening. Um, and like you said, it's, uh, you know, we need, uh, we, more countries to actually align on that, right? Mm. Uh, you know, sort of uh, deciding what's the threshold that we want across all countries, um, as long as uh, there is alignment on that end and, you know, all the stakeholders understand the implications, I think uh, we're on a good path. And what role should the develop, the AI developers, big tech themselves play in that relationship and that collaborative management with governments, whether at a supra or a national level? Should they be just producing the product? Should they be responsible for policing the industry themselves? How, how is the balance to be struck between government regulation and industry responsibility? I mean, if you look at uh, the big tech uh, companies in AI, right? I mean, they're the ones that are controlling sort of like the growth and development of AI, right? And that's where uh, China and uh, US differ as well. Uh, you know, China has a more uh, aligned national AI strategy where the different entities are just part of that overall vision, right? Um, in the US, it's more these tech companies working independently, so to speak, and they're super powerful um, and they have amazing scale as well, right? Um, I mean, I do think there is this, um, this dilemma, so to speak, right? Because, uh, you know, for-profit entities are always driven by profits, right? So how do you balance that with, uh, you know, sort of like an ethical, uh, ethical, you know, framework, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially with, um, you know, I mean, over the last few years, we've seen so many uh, controversies happening with companies like Facebook, where, um, uh, where they've actually, you know, uh, used uh, data from millions of consumers without, without, you know, getting their consent, right? Um, and actually be utilizing them for, uh, you know, political advertising and things like that, which are so scary to think about, right? Um, in terms of, uh, you know, my hope, you know, um, that big tech is also a very important a stakeholder in this whole ecosystem, right? We can't ignore them. And I think uh, for governments, it's super important one to understand, right, um, as well. Because uh, what you also see sometimes is um, the government is a few steps behind in terms of the development of AI, um, in terms of what's actually happening, right? Mm. So you need experts on that side of the table as well, who do understand what's happening, right? So they ask the right questions. They'll, they know where to look for, right? In terms of uh, issues and so on. And, you know, try to get everybody on the same, like, like around the same table and have conversations around um, the, the right way of doing things. And again, you know, having that threshold. So you've touched on in the last couple of answers about um, some of the early stage challenges in the developing world in terms of implementing AI. And there are clearly many benefits of AI technologies in terms of helping developing countries to leapfrog 
perhaps some of the traditional development models and complex and expensive infrastructure that's needed with transportation and energy and healthcare and education and so on. And there are some tremendous examples from around the world where that's working very, very effectively. However, as AI relies on data to drive it and learn from it, there's also challenges around how that data is used in developing countries as there are challenges in developed countries. But how do we stop AI and the data that comes from it creating a form of data colonialism, if you like, when it, when it comes to developing countries specifically? Right. I mean, uh, the challenge, I mean, one of the big challenges is uh, the usage of data only kind of comes up when there's, you know, a scandal, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. discussed before products are built. It's not discussed before, uh, you know, things are implemented and algorithms are built. It only comes up after, you know, uh, some there's some data leak and then we find out about it and there's, you know, a lot of controversy mm -hmm. around it. So in terms of actually, this has to be part of that foundation, right? Yes. So when you're actually building these algorithms, when you're thinking about, uh, you know, any product, I mean, really even looking at what are the data points that you're collecting, right? Um, for example, you know, um, I'm a marketer, right? Um, and with marketing, it's all about personalization and, you know, uh, being able to recommend things and so on. So, you know, for us, it's, amazing as much as data. I mean, if you have like a lot of data on consumers, you get to really tailor your messaging and, you know, offering and so on. So it's great. But then really taking a step back and even thinking if that is ethical in so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, uh, you know, the, the flip side of it is that you know everything about everybody even before they know it. So really, uh, really thinking about what that means and trying to draw a line before there has to be some line between profit and, you know, ethics, mm. right? So where for you, where does principled, what does principled leadership look like in your view in AI development? And do you see some positive examples of that out there in industry that you can, that you can highlight? Sure. Um, for me, uh, principal leadership means uh, really thinking about these issues, right? Thinking about issues like diversity, ethics, uh, bias, privacy. It means really being intentional about data. How you, you know, what are the data points you collect? How do you collect it? How do you harness it? Um, it means having a really diverse team, uh, not just in terms of different nationalities, but also, uh, you know, uh, not just data scientists, but, you know, linguists and social scientists mm -hmm. and so on. What that means is when you're, you know, um, when you're collecting that team and building something, you have diverse viewpoints, you even think, you know, so it affects the, the products you build, the algorithms you build. Um, so in there is, uh, what I do love is there is a lot of conversation happening, right? Uh, you know, even companies are being um, really uh, intentional, at least thinking about things like that. Um, you know, there, there is, uh, there are a few that are sort of uh, declining uh, the usage of some types of, you know, they do collect it, right, in terms of consumer data, but mm -hmm. really being clear on what's actually for sale and what's not, right? Um, so in terms of, you know, in terms of principal leadership, it actually comes uh, also to the, the values 
of individuals as well as organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is going to be uh, your the value that you live by in terms of uh, in terms of really uh, harnessing uh, you know uh, consumer data and what do you uh, you know t- uh, put out there as well? Mm-hmm. You touched earlier on about facial recognition technologies, and there seems to be primary or two primary streams for AI, if you like, one based on momentum, one based on monitoring. So in terms of momentum, it's how we use AI to create more momentum in society, advance society through greater efficiencies and speed and access to services and, and so on. And all of those great things that we've touched on, and there are many examples in the world of that. And then the other is monitoring of communities, societies, employees, and communications and so on. Not all of it is malicious monitoring, some has done to to create more efficiencies, but is monitoring the price we have to pay for momentum? Do do we have to have both in order to have progress in society and and all of those wonderful things that AI can deliver for us? Sure. I mean, I think they should technically go hand in hand, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of um, issues that we face right now in terms of in terms of AI and uh, sort of misuse of it is is because the monitoring part has been missing for the longest time, right? Yeah. Um, and it's uh, again, you know, who's uh, who's uh, you know around that table when you when you're building stuff, right? Uh, you know, if it's uh, sort of like almost like a homogeneous group of people, they might not even um, understand the implications, or they might not even see the bias that's inherent, right? Um, there needs to be a really robust framework around monitoring, right? And really have it in the foundation level so that, uh, you know, whatever you build on top, if it has that, uh, you know, uh, layer of check, uh, like a check-in mechanism at every point. Otherwise it just, you know, uh, these companies or these products become almost too big to fail. And then we realize, oh, like, you know, uh, uh, there has been like this data leak or there has been this uh, uh, training data that's, you know, super racist or something like that, right? It has to be part of that early enough, uh, like that creation of algorithms has to include those conversations. It's quite, and we've touched on this in a couple of the previous answers, but there's quite a an uncomfortable contradiction at the heart of AI, I feel, is it's got the potential to deliver, to deliver so many advances that could have positive effects on communities and nations. However, AI and automation, it's also predicted to have, they will have a, an incredibly negative effect on many jobs, especially manual labor and manufacturing jobs. And they are currently the jobs upon which many developing nations are largely built on in terms of their economy. And the argument for those jobs that are lost is that on the one hand, they will be compensated by new jobs and a a reskilled workforce over time. However, that reskilling is challenging enough in developed economies. You know, we're we're having challenges in in Europe and the US and in many parts of Asia of upskilling manual labor jobs. It could be catastrophic in that sense in developing nations. So how can we mitigate the good things of AI, all of those circumventing the infrastructure challenges that many countries have, but also how do we mitigate the, the challenges around the, the disappearance of so many manual and manufacturing jobs? 
I mean, you're right in terms of, you know, AI taking over a lot of jobs, right? Especially um, the, the manual ones in terms of uh, whether it's manufacturing, logistics, and so on. And um, we can see that in the days to come, it's going to really come at a faster rate, right? Um, in terms of, uh, you know, jobs uh, that are replaced, um, you cannot sort of compare it apples to apples, right? I mean, we have these conversations around, uh, you know, there will be uh, not new jobs or there's that opportunity to create new jobs where we can use our creativity, where humans can bring in their uh, extra elements and really um, actually even do jobs that are better for them. But it's uh, not easy, right? Um, what I do think is uh, it, it almost feels like you know you can in the you know in the distance you can see an iceberg, right? Um, and you know we're headed that way where a lot of jobs are going to be cut. And you know from common sense you also know that it's the impact that you see is going to be much bigger than what you actually even see, right? Because once you once you hit it, it's going to be massive, right? So. Uh, that's where a lot of long-term investment comes in, right? In terms of, you know, um, making sure that you're prepared, right? Uh, I think it's going to be uh, uh, naive to think that you can sort of prepare and say, oh, we're going to lose 100,000 jobs. Let's create 100,000 jobs. That's not going to happen. But really looking out in I can't even say future, right? Because it's almost like the present. Yes. What are going to be the skills that are going to be important? I mean, there's so much conversation or now that uh, you sh you have to be almost, uh, you know, really not closing your eyes and ears to kind of avoid this conversation. But really thinking, you know, five years down the road, ten years down the road, as nations, right? And really thinking, well, what what do we need to do in terms of, you know, including it in the curriculum? Really preparing our workforce. When when that ship hits that iceberg, how do we make sure that the impact is lessened and things like that? Migration has. Well, it's one of the defining issues of the 21st century, I think, the desire for, for people to find a better economic opportunity and, and to migrate to do that. Given the what we've just discussed, AI and automation actually has the potential to be a direct contributor to increased economic migration if manufacturing and manual labour agricultural jobs are lost in the developing world, if it's not managed effectively. So who who needs to take the responsibility for managing the implementation, the, the activation of automation and AI, both at a regional and at a global level. Can a supranational organization like the UN facilitate that? What is the collaboration required between governments and what does the relationship look like between business and government to facilitate that? Right. Um, I mean, I'm a strong believer in public-private partnerships, right? I think those if done well, they can really work, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you just uh, depend on the government, um, it's tough, right? I mean, uh, they have their weaknesses and so on. And, you know, a lot of bureaucracy and th things like that. If you just depend on private companies to sort of uh, take the lead and, you know, move this forward, it also means that they're they might have an, like a hidden agenda, mm -hmm. right? But when you are able to bring these different stakeholders, private companies, um, government, as well as you know entities like the UN and so on, right? There is a lot of change that can be done. Um, one example that I'll share is um, 
from my previous company, Fuse Machines, right? Um, so one of the things that we used to do was part of its social mission, uh, the company would educate uh, students around the world on artificial intelligence, which is such a needed skill. Um, and, you know, I love that mission. So one of the things we did in Nepal was partner with agencies like UK Aid and things like that, where, uh, you know, they help with the revenue part of things and you know the sponsoring the project and so on um, and uh, entities like fuse machines would actually implement it right um, what that does is it actually creates a lot of accountability as well um, in terms of you know setting milestones really tracking them and so on but it also allows for these different entities can and sort of you know bringing their core expertise as well i think that's super needed to kind of take it to the next level so is there an opportunity for, I guess, to create a virtuous circle, AI being used as a foundation to reskill those whose jobs are impacted on by AI? Can we create a virtuous circle using AI to, to upskill for the post or for the fourth industrial revolution, if you like? Um, definitely, definitely. I mean, um, there are so many organizations that are doing amazing work in this space, right? Uh, you know, beginning from coding and computer science. Um, so there's organizations like uh, code.org, uh, girls who code, um, codepath.org that are, uh, you know, teaching these valuable skills. And what they're also doing is they're sort of tackling different um, consumer segments, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. um, for example, there's uh, one of my favorite organizations is, uh, is one based in uh, California that it's called AI for All that teaches AI to high schoolers, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, one of the things uh, with AI is, uh, again, we want to encourage more women, more uh, more minorities, more women sort of in that space, right? And really uh, making sure that um, those uh, those uh, segments are included. Um, and also what's also happening is like, for example, even in the US, um, depending on uh, whether it's a public school or private school or, you know, the, lo the location of the school, um, the kind of, um, if you got the computer science in the curriculum was like almost like a luck factor mm -hmm. right and you know when we're looking at the present now and we do see the uh, the really the importance of computer science and you know artificial intelligence and so on it's so important to bring a, to have that foundation now right so for example with uh, code.org um, they uh, partner with uh, school districts and um, um, and even like tech companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, and they deliver um, K to 12 curriculum, right, on computer science. And I think that's like super, super amazing, right? Because you're building that foundation. It's not like people that, you know, have a bachelor's de degree or they're midpoint in their career and they're thinking in terms of how do I tweak my, you know, obviously there is a lot of opportunity there as well, right? In terms of really skilling the workforce that's out there, but also really thinking about the workforce of the future and preparing them, uh, you know? So I do think there is a lot of opportunity in terms of having that, um, that circle, making sure that AI becomes, you know, the education in AI becomes the norm in so many ways. A slightly more theoretical question, but I wondered whether AI could be used to help create a new foundational commercial model for business. So one that has, for example, has 
sustainability baked into the core of that business model. So, so businesses, when they launch, when they start up, when they move forward, sustainability becomes a core part of the proposition rather than an afterthought, rather than trying to shoehorn a sustainability model into that business. Yeah. It actually becomes crucial and critical to its commercial proposition. Right. I mean, that's my hope, right, in terms of having that triple bottom line, so to speak, and that, you know, companies have almost like a balanced scorecard sort of framework for measuring, you know, a lot of things. Um, what I what I've seen is a lot of companies, they're already using AI in their CSR, you know, uh, sort of initiatives and so on, right? Um, the numbers aren't as uh, you know, there's still many more companies that still aren't doing that, right? Um, and, um, but the sort of the positive thing is, uh, you know, it is being used, right? For example, I think Google uses uh, AI to predict uh, energy usage for data centers. Um, I think IBM does such an amazing job uh, with smart cities, right? Really, you know, helping uh, build smart cities and they do a lot of, you know, weather forecasting and data analysis. Um, there's this company called Excel Energy that sort of looks at, um, they're an energy company they use, like they have coal plants. So they look at emissions of nitrous oxide and things like that. What that means is, you know, companies are starting to implement it, right? And I think it, if we can have more adoption in terms of uh, more companies actually seeing that it's not just something you, uh, you do to appear as good, right? AI actually has the ability to uh, improve efficiency to lower costs, right? And, and those are things that companies are really involved in, I mean, interested in, right? So, I mean, I think it, um, it, it's about, you know, building that awareness in terms of how do companies see that if they work towards social impact, sustainability, and things like that, it's actually good for their bottom line, right? To If they can connect those dots, then I think we'll see more, uh, you know, more companies sort of, you know, including that as their, um, as part of their business model, not just kind of uh, put it in their, uh, you know, paperwork just so, mm -hmm. to sound um, nice, right? Um, but I think there's also one thing that needs to be included. Um, for example, with a lot of these uh, uh, implementations and so on, there needs to be a discussion around risk as well, mm. right? Again, you know, because every time we talk about efficiency and the positive side of things, there has to be um, some discussion around, you know, what are some of the risks that, that are involved in terms of, you know, building these models and so on. So where is the, in your mind, where is the balance to be set in a business between data-driven decision-making based on AI and, and, uh, and other data segments and cells that are used to make decisions about the future of business and product and relationship with consumers and the role that human intuition needs to play and should still continue to play? Because we, we have a very salient example here in the UK with regards to the post office and convictions of postmasters because of failures in accountancy and, and, and various other programs that destroyed the careers of, of, of many people here. Right, right. I think there's a balance to be had between solely relying on the data-driven decision-making of AI, but also still a role for human intuition 
And how do we strike that balance in business? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's tricky, right? Um, because uh, with AI, what uh, one of the reasons AI has been so uh, sort of popular is because, you know, it's uh, sexy to, uh, you know, like, especially for things like Alexa and Google Home and so on, right? I mean, just as an example, you know, uh, I have Google Home at home, I mean, and it's super convenient, right? I mean, I can control a lot of things. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, because I know about the industry, I also know, I'm really aware in terms of what kind of uh, data it is, um, it is processing and things like that. And it's scary, right? Um, if you look at uh, the prevalence of fake news and deep fakes and all of those things, it's, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, for example, just um, uh, just earlier this month, I actually did a project for, for school, right? And, you know, we were analyzing social media uh, for uh, all these things. And it's scary how easy it is. It just takes like five minutes to, you know, come up with something that looks uh, incredibly real, but it's not, right? And um, so there is obviously a lot of um, things on that end. Um, what I do think is um, having that awareness, building that awareness is super important, right? Because uh, people don't understand the implications of a lot of things they're doing. Um, you know, I was actually reflecting on this uh, just a while ago. Um, there used to be um, this 10-year uh, challenge on Facebook, right, um, very recently where, um, you know, people were, um, and it was like viral, everybody was doing it, where um, people were posting their photos from uh, today and, you know, 10 years ago and so on, right? Uh, it's it's fun, obviously, but then people don't in, uh, realize that they're actually giving their photos for free and making this uh, training uh, data set for these companies, right? Um, and we don't even think about the implications or how they're going to be used and things like that. So just I think, you know, understanding that is super important in terms of the ethical um, side of, uh, you know, side of AI. And in terms of, uh, you know, even being really intentional in terms of where does um, the human element comes in, right? Um, I, I love the aspect of augmenting human intelligence, right? I think there is so much opportunity there and there is, that is, that's where um, I hope a lot of work will be done, right? Um, in terms of, for example, even with insurance or um, some other things where the machine crunches, uh, you know, does what it's best at in terms of, you know, looking at patterns, uh, recommending things and so on. But then the human comes in sort of to look at factors that uh, that maybe a machine can't do, right? Have that, you know, conversation with, with another human, really build on that and so on. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that's where the trend moves towards really, um, you know, sort of so that uh, it's a win-win for both parties. Just to finish the, the conversation today, I mean, where, where do you, from a developing nation's perspective, and that's a lot of what we've touched on today, where do you consider the biggest single challenge facing the developing world in its relationship with AI? Where is the challenge to be had? Um, I think two major areas. Uh, one is lack of access, right, to AI education. And then the second one is investment, right? And they go hand in hand, so to speak, right? Uh, and um, I think, uh, you know, there, 
there is a global shortage of AI talent and so on, right? Um, and when we're thinking about the future and the uh, competitive advantage of different countries and so on, it's not just going to be the size of the country and you know the GDP and things like that, but it's also going to be the skill level of, of its people, right? Um, and AI is something that is going to impact us I mean, even if you work in something, an industry where you probably aren't going to build something, it is going to impact your daily life, right? So if you can really, um, you know, have access to that, really build your workforce, so to speak, I think, uh, you know, we're set in that sense. And also investment, right? I mean, because that drives a lot of activity as well. So if you have capital flowing into um, you know, these uh, conversations, um, and especially with the developing world, um, I love that, uh, you know, people around the world, um, they're looking at AI, not just in terms of, you know, solving first world problems, but really looking at problems that developing world is facing, right? I mean, they're looking at issues around congestion and um, traffic and, you know, agriculture and things like that, things that are really local. And what they're doing is they're sort of putting their local expertise, local knowledge with AI, which is almost global, so to speak, right? And they're coming up with solutions. So in terms of if we can funnel, uh, you know, capital into these ideas, into uh, these solutions, I think, um, I think that would be great. I mean, that throws up a really interesting point, and that's about AI developers solving problems for developing nations rather than solving problems with. And I wondered, how do we better ensure that there aren't unintended consequences? You know, we, we, we believe, or the AI developers or development uh, company, who's perhaps based in the US for argument's sake, developing a solution for a developing nation, when in fact there wasn't enough input from those local communities, from those local societies to ensure that it was fit for purpose, if you like. How do we ensure that the the intention is met with the practical delivery and application of that AI technology. I mean, I think that's where that diverse teams comes in as well, right? Because what you, what you, you know, you're almost setting yourself for success if you, you know, re are really intentional about having people from, you know, the local people as well as people maybe experts from the UK or the US, right? When you're assembling that team, what that does is you know, um, give you a better chance, right? And also, I think it also comes back to uh, principal leadership, like you talk about, and the culture of the organization you build, right? So it's not just important to have a diverse team, it's also empowering them so that even, you know, an a software engineer uh, in Nepal, for example, if, you know, if, if uh, he or she is on your team, they feel empowered enough to say, okay, you know, it doesn't make sense. Or, you know, there are local nuances that we need to consider, or this is how it's done here, or things like that, right? When we can have uh, with AI, um, my experience is that if we can have, you know, very honest conversations, whether it's, you know, on your team or, you know, in general, um, I think that's where a lot of magic happens, right? That's where the best solutions, uh, you know, emerge or, you know, we actually learn um, from that, right? So, you know, having that diverse team that are uh, empowered enough to share ideas and um, expertise, I think that's, that's a good idea. Thank you very much for your time on the new PNL today. It's been a pleasure. No worries, no worries. I really had a great time, Paul. Thank you very much. Take care. If you've enjoyed today's episode, 
please do take a moment to go to principlesandleadership.com and check out the rest of the new PL episodes. And please do also take a moment to rate us or review us. We genuinely appreciate it and all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And don't forget to pop back on Friday for the new PL to the point, our 10-minute weekly summary episode. I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.